Julia Gerlach. Welcome to this episode of the Strip Till Farmer podcast series, supported by Yetter Farm Equipment. I encourage you to subscribe to the series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about new episodes when they're released. Thanks to Yetter Farm Equipment for supporting this podcast series. Yetter Farm Equipment has been providing farmers with solutions since 1930. Today, Yetter is your answer for finding the tools and equipment you need to face today's production agriculture demands. The Yetter lineup includes a wide range of planter attachments for different planting conditions, several equipment options for fertilizer placement, and products that meet harvest time challenges. Yetter delivers a return on investment and equipment that meets your needs and maximizes inputs. Visit them at yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O.com. There are any number of reasons a farmer might adopt strip-till as a management practice, from reducing soil disturbance to targeting nutrient management to improving soil health. Independent crop consultant Dorian Gatchel of Minnesota Agricultural Services says these motives all have a common purpose, to improve plant health and therefore boost yields. For this episode of the Strip-Till Farmer podcast, we chat with Dorian about why he says it's important to try to think like a plant and how that simple change in mindset can help farmers make wise management decisions on their operations. Simply put, he says, unless decisions are made based on how they benefit the crop rather than how they benefit the operator, there's a good chance they aren't agronomically sound. Join us as Dorian discusses why he prefers coulters to knives when doing spring strip-till, the correlation between the plant and the environment in determining yields, why he's excited about DNA soil testing, and more. Dorian Gatchel. I grew up right here in Granite Falls. My, you know, my family has been on, well, I'm, my son is actually the sixth generation of a family farm right here in Granite Falls. I grew up on a, a typical, for the era, I guess, corn, soybean, there's some livestock and very typical of what our area is. It, it's real crop. We do have some sugar beets, some small grain, you know, the, the livestock is getting fewer and farther between out here now, but uh, it's primarily corn and soybeans. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've worked as a field agronomist my essentially my entire career okay. uh, in in a retail setting, industry setting for for a lot of it about 12 years ago. I, as the way I like to put it is I got tired of working for a living, so I quit and started my own consulting firm, and that's what I do now with Minnesota Agricultural Services, uh, based right here in Granite Falls. Um, we, we cover a territory of about 30 to 40 mile radius. Okay. In, in granite. Mm-hmm. So that radius puts me onto, uh, you know, close to South Dakota, which is a, a very different climate even than what it is on the, on the eastern side of the county. You know, then I get, you know, 30, 40 miles to the west. And it seems like Highway 71 is kind of that cutoff again into another climate regime going, going that direction. So it's to, uh, gets to sow some, some diversity in, in soils and topography and even management practices. Yeah. So did you go to school for agronomy or something? Yes. My, I did my undergrad at Brookings, SDSU in Brookings, oh. um, master's at Iowa State in Ames. My training background is in agronomy and soils. And so I understand that you're a very strong advocate for strip-till. Um, just love to hear you tell me how you got introduced to strip-till and what gets you excited about the practice. I guess what gets me excited about it is that 
you know, as I say, my background, my training is in agronomy and crop production, and my work is helping farmers do the best job they can, you know, in their cropping practices. And it just happens to be that scriptural brings a lot of those best management practices that these guys need to raise a crop. It builds the resilience of the soil to be able to withstand what is a normal season anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, um, we just went through a couple of years where we had probably in living memory, the, the wettest years we've ever had, then went through one that's extremely dry. We're going through economics right now. Our fertilizer prices, input prices are rising rapidly this yeah. year. I think the scripto guys are going to be able to weather those storms a little bit better than, than the conventional folks. Again, because it brings those uh, best management practices in. Now, we can also talk about you know the soil uh, health aspect of it. And, you know, a lot of folks that have adopted it are those that are adopting soil health practices, you know, which is great. I mean, it, it reduces your erosion, reduces the, the soil's exposure to both, you know, wind and, and rain. It can reduce your fuel consumption, your time management, mm-hmm. you know, so all those things bring benefits. Yeah, right. Well, and it can also help reduce nutrient uh, inputs um, because of the targeted nutrient um, the placement. Yeah. Yes, so. absolutely. Um, that, well, I'd put it this way, whether someone is in strip till, conventional till, um, they should be banding the fertilizer. Mm-hmm. Um, broadcast fertilizer from the viewpoint of the crop is probably one of the most inefficient ways to do it. Crop, you know, loves having it in that band. And here in Western Minnesota, we have very high calcareous soils, meaning that, you know, our phosphorus is binding up with our soil at a higher rate than it would be further east. And by banding that fertilizer, it it increases that efficiency a bit. Now, I hope you're not gonna ask me about, okay, what percentage can we, you know, change? Because, I mean, it's not that simple and it's not the same for everybody. Right, right. Um, but yes, fertilizer efficiency and utilization under a banded system, whether it's on strip till or just on a conventional till program, mm-hmm. uh, is, is greater. And so you wouldn't necessarily know percentage-wise in terms of how much people can reduce their inputs. I, I won't make that statement yeah, on a yeah. general basis. You know, now talking with individual farmers. You know, it's going to depend on a lot of things. You know, it's going to depend on their soil and, you know, how much rain they get and their other management. I, I think everybody needs to look at it this way. Okay, we probably reduce our nutrient applications, but start small and incrementally reduce those to get to a comfortable spot. So, you know, working in the strip till and the no-till fields, one thing you hear a lot, I'm sure you hear it all the time is, oh, that won't work here, especially in the north and things like that. I mean, so what's what's your thought process when people tell you that? Oh, it's not going to work here. If somebody believes it's not going to work, it's not going to work. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and realistically, that's, that's it. I mean, I've got some growers that I talk with that absolutely do not have any interest, um, have that same thought. If I convince them, if I convince them to make a switch, they're going to have that attitude. Okay, well, it's not going to work and they're going to make it not work. Mm-hmm. Um, so my job isn't to convince anybody to switch, but at least give them the information so that they can, you know, maybe this is something that we can look at. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I run across that all the time. And that's what they think. If it's not going to work, they're going to, it's, it's not going to work. 
Yeah. Um, I, I've seen, I've heard folks even visually see something and say, well, no, there's something there we're missing. You know, they just don't want to believe it. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, hey, that which is fine. Everybody's got their own, their own way of doing things. And, you know, for some people, making that change is a major, major, major management shift in the way they're operating their farm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe that is too much of a change. Well, it takes so much more precision to do strip till. Um, absolutely. Um, I've had one one grower tell me that he looks at strip till as he looks at, at his planter. Um, he says, I'm planting fertilizer. Uh-huh. I think it's a, it's a very good analogy because, you know, these guys spend a lot of time and a lot of effort because they know how important it is to drive that planter and to put the seed where it needs to be. Yeah. And it takes that same attitude when running the strip till machine. You know, a lot of retired farmers, you know, they just like to be able to, you know, help the neighbors out in the in the fall on a tillage tractor and just get in there and drive. Well, you can't do that with the strip till. You got to be, you know, why you're there, why you're doing what you're doing. Yeah. And the technology. I've seen some folks struggle with the, with the guidance, the technology side of it. Yeah, and is that struggle based on the technology itself, or is it uh, issues with GPS, you know, that sort of thing? I, I think it's more, um, there are so many different um, manufacturers of the precision equipment that the compatibility of one company to talk to another company. Oh. Um, you know, one color paint to the other, another color paint. They just don't always get yeah. along. Yeah, that is definitely a challenge, right? Um, but so you must have seen, however, some pretty uh, impressive successes in your time. Can you talk about any of those with strip till? Oh yeah, absolutely. A um, couple of stories I like talking about. One this year is again going through a really dry year, and it's going to be exciting to when harvest finally gets done to be able to do the comparisons. Uh, mm-hmm. But I do think that the the guys on strip till are faring better. Okay. Uh, and a couple of reasons. Again, let's get back to banding fertilizer. Uh, we've seen a lot of potassium uh, deficiencies in, in the crop this year. It's not that the potassium was not in the soil. It was just not getting to the plant. Mm-hmm. Well, again, when looking at broadcast fertilizer and all that fertilizer being spread, let's say, you know, evenly across the soil and tilled in, you know, three to four inches. Well, the plant gets planted. It starts to grow. A plant root won't grow through dry soil. But now all of a sudden, this fertilizer is sitting in a dry soil and the plant can access it. But the guys with the banding, and I think I see this also not just with script tail, but like I say, even with the guys that just do that band fertilizer, you know, the fertilizer is in a, in a zone below the seed. Mm-hmm. Fertilizer is a salt, a desiccant. So my theory is that it's pulling moisture laterally across the soil, putting it into that zone. So now all of a sudden, we've got a a higher moisture, higher fertility zone in which that plant can access its nutrients. The other thing is, is generally when we get rain, we get it in inches per hour, it seems like nowadays. It just comes down very fast. And if we get a three inch rainfall, I always question, well, how much rain did we actually get? Because how much of that, you know, ran off the soil surface, how much of it was able to absorb in. Sure, the sure. guys with uh, strip till, reduced till, uh, have a better capability of holding that rain when it does come. So they're just more moisture in their soil. Mm-hmm. Um, so like I say, it's gonna be really interesting to see how they fare. 
you know, and those same guys in two years ago, I guess it was three years ago in 18 and 19, when it was just extremely wet, hey, they were able to drive across their fields and harvest when everybody else was getting stuck because they had support there in their soil. So both extremes, these guys, and maybe it's my bias. Maybe I just want to see it this year because it did. But that's why I say it's going to be interesting to see when the, when the yields finally come. But and then last year, and this is probably one of my favorite stories. You now, if you remember, was it August of 20 when that storm hit Iowa? Yeah, the derecho. Yes. Yeah. Um, the week prior to that, we had a similar storm locally right here. Nowhere as near as big of a territory as what hit Iowa. But you know, we had um, upwards of 100 mile an hour winds. It was about an eight, nine mile wide windstorm okay. and about 30 miles long. And wow. Granite Falls was right in the center of it. Well, after that, the next day started seeing some very interesting patterns out in the fields. Mm -hmm. um, so I went on and took some pictures. And, you know, by, you know, in the air, you can see all the, the tire tracks were standing from the planter tracks. You can see the tillage tractor tracks that were going at an angle were standing and everything else fell over. So it makes it have the question, why do we see that? Mm -hmm. uh, then I go to the strip till fields. And the strip till fields looked like there was never a wind. Mm -hmm. They didn't have any issues with that at all. And it's simply come down to the reason the corn plant stood in the wheel tracks and the reason it stood in the strip till is because the plant had something to hold on to it. And I see that many, quite a few years, or I should say more often than not, the, the wheel tracks after a windstorm, the plants in the wheel tracks had, and I'm not gonna use the word compaction because that's a negative soil connotation, had more firmness, more bulk density, something for the plant roots to hold on to. Mm -hmm. And the same thing then comes from in our strip till fields uh, and no-till fields is that, yeah, there was more soil structure, the moisture, the rain was able to go down instead of pool on top of the ground. So. Yeah, hey, it wasn't the crop that failed in these systems. It was the soil that failed. Mm -hmm. The, you know, like I said, the plants just had something to hold on to. I, you know, the pictures are really, really neat. It's going to be really interesting to to see the harvest this year, just to see how these systems are faring because they they are building a more resilient soil environment. Because you got to understand, you know, hey, when we're out in the field. Uh, doing something, you know, are we out there doing it for our benefit or to the crop's benefit? Mm -hmm. You know, broadcast fertilizer is not to the crop's benefit. That is to the operator's benefit. Well, and I'm curious, I, of course, tend to think of strip-till as a practice that farmers would go to if they've been doing conventional practices. Do you ever see situations where you think it makes sense to switch to strip-till from no-till? Because I have heard of a little bit of that as well. Oh, wow. Um, from no-till. Probably the biggest reason I would see anybody want to switch from there would be coming back to the fertilizer placement. Okay. Um, you know, any uh, no-till fertilizer, if it's placed on top of the soil, is going to be subject to, you know, loss through, through runoff. Mm -hmm. um, nitrogen management can be a little bit more difficult in that. I, I think that'd be the big reason why someone would... Yeah. And we go to strip till from no till. Sure. Yeah. 
And in terms of that erosion, I mean, I know that uh, if you're going from conventional to strip till, obviously that is a reduction in uh, chances for erosion, but there is still that, you know, erosion of the strip that's possible in uh, strip till. So uh, what sort of advice do you have for the guys who are worried about erosion, but do want to do strip till? Well, a person just got to realize that no matter what we do, mother nature will win. Um, you know, if, if we get, heavy rain those strips are channels now you know you got the un untilled strip in or uh, the un untilled berm within this between the strips that are not going to erode but all that water now goes into that strip and yeah we have seen some pretty severe erosion on those strips it can happen uh -huh. um, i in my experience i think it happens more on those transition years okay when people are going from a conventional system to strip till uh, after a few years of strip till where the soil gets um, some more resilience built into it, it is less uh, susceptible to that. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, it, it's never, never something that can be eliminated. You know, and the advice I would give somebody is just be aware that it can happen. And maybe we got to do the unthinkable and sometimes go in there with a small chisel plow or a field cultivator and just level things off and start over again. You know, mm -hmm. that's that's happened. And so fall strip till versus spring strip till. Do you have any thoughts on that? I prefer fall. OK. Um, yeah. A couple of reasons. One is just time management. We got a lot more time in the fall to do things than we do in the spring. Mm -hmm. And typically our soil conditions are just more favorable to doing it in the fall. Mm -hmm. It's not unusual to need to go out and freshen the strips in the spring, depending on what our winters are like. Um, but if we go in and just try to do spring strips uh, because of the, the soil is usually, you know, got more moisture in it. It's just harder to do. So I prefer fall. And so uh, let's just say somebody did fall strip till, what would be the signs that they need to refresh their strips in the spring? I hate using the word clods, but that's the way it turns out is that, you know, you know, after any tillage type, whether it is a strip till or conventional till or anything, um, it's going to ball up some soil. And over winter, typically those will break down and become more mellow. Okay. Sometimes over winter that doesn't happen and that's when we need to go in and do a refresh is just to go in and, and break up some of those clods um, to make a, a better seed bed. Uh -huh. Gotcha. And sometimes we got to get rid of the other residue too because you know we do get wind once in a while in the winter here mm -hmm. and sometimes the other excess residue will build up within that strip and we just got to go and move that out of the way. We'll get back to my conversation with Dorian in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Yetter Farm Equipment, for supporting our Strip-Till Farmer podcast. Yetter Farm Equipment has been providing farmers with solutions since 1930. Today, Yetter is your answer for finding the tools and equipment you need to face today's production agriculture demands. The Yetter lineup includes a wide range of planter attachments for different planting conditions, several equipment options for fertilizer placement, and products that meet harvest time challenges. Yetter delivers a return on investment and equipment that meets your needs and maximizes inputs. Visit them at yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O.com. Now let's get back to Dorian Gatchel. What are your thoughts on nutrient placement in the fall? If they're doing their strips in the fall, they need to do their, their nutrients in the fall. Mm-hmm. Um, now, agronomically, I'd like to see um, everything done in the spring. I mean, it just, 
again, coming the viewpoint of the plant, the plant would prefer to have it there in the in the spring. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's not exposed to the environment as long and but you know it comes down to time management again you know we can't i mean physically can't do everything in the spring we just got to do some in the fall so if they're set up to do strips in the fall uh, they can do some of their immobile nutrients um, p and k in the fall um, a lot of the guys will either put down some or none of their nitrogen in the fall and side dress their uan or whatever nitrogen source in the spring or in the summer which works really well but at least getting the P and K down in the fall, sulfur in the fall, zinc, whatever they need to do. We've already kind of touched on some of this, but in terms of improving soil health, where do you see strip till fitting in, into that equation? Building soil structure. That is the foundation. Um, by doing less tillage, they're building their soil structure. And I think that uh, from our examples earlier, and I think that is the major reason why we've been seeing what we've been seeing um, you build a soil structure, you get better water infiltration, you get better root infiltration, you get earthworms, um, microorganisms, uh, a more favorable environment to live in. Mm -hmm. Just like I say, to me, soil structure is just the foundation. That's what a person's got to be working towards building. And so are you seeing that reflected back in soil testing, things like that? I mean, are you seeing an increase in uh, you know, microbial life when you switch to strip till? I don't know if there's a really good way to assess that yet definitively. Mm -hmm. um, we, I mean, we, visually, circumstantial, I, I think we do see some things, you know, but to be able to go out there and verify it with a soil test, I mean, you know, any, you know, there's nothing uniform in the field. You take uh, 10 steps from one soil test to the next, you can have a whole nother universe. Mm -hmm. You know, so being able to quantify at that I'm going to say, no, we haven't been able to do that because we just haven't been able to do the fine enough testing to do it. But um, yes, visually, we're seeing differences. Uh -huh. Okay. Are there, uh, just speaking of soil tests, are, do you have soil tests that you think are really useful for farmers? I mean, what sort of tests do you recommend for, for folks? Well, I mean, we still need to do our nutrient testing. Mm -hmm. um, make sure that, you know, we don't want to underapply, we don't want to overapply. So, I mean, the typical nutrient testing is, is very viable. Yeah, you know, on yeah. the soil health side, there's a lot of, and especially in the last five, six years, you know, the, the soil health test has been becoming more popular. I don't know if we know exactly what to make of those as far as, okay, if we get the soil health test back, what does that tell us and what management decision can we make? I don't know if we know that precisely yet. Yeah, uh, yeah. We probably still need to keep taking them in order to learn that. So I, I suggest everybody that, hey, let's take them, let's um, look at them, but let's not try to, you know, make too many management decisions on them yet. Okay. And I've been doing some work with some private labs on, which I think is really kind of a unique technology on DNA testing, um, where they're actually testing all the DNA in the soil. And since all of our crop pests and many of our beneficial microorganisms are are sequenced you know once they sequence all that dna then all of a sudden we get a a spatial representation of what is in the soil as far as good and bad organisms you know a, a spatial um layout plus a load you know there's more here than over here and and so forth i think that's going to be something I, i'm going to work on that more i think that is something that's maybe going to have some information that can be we can bite our teeth into and make some decisions on yeah, that's really interesting. Do you know, do those tests determine 
whether those DNA sequences are actually connected with living microorganisms? Because I think that they, they might pick up dormant. Um, oh, yeah, absolutely. And that can. And, you know, another thing to think about on those is that when you take a soil test in a dry soil versus a wet one, you're going to have a different level of mm -hmm. biological activity. Yeah. Uh, but to your point, okay, just because you're getting the DNA, does that mean you have the... Um, well, my interests first come from the, the crop pests that we need to deal with. It was soybean cyst nematode was my, oh. first, my first thought is okay, now we have this DNA sequence and how much there is, does that mean we have so much nematodes? Mm -hmm. Well, we've done some testing and went and did traditional SCN tests mm -hmm. to, to see. And yeah, there does seem to be a good correlation, at least on SCN that, hey, if you have this much DNA, you have this much SCN. Okay. Um, I would expect that would come, would, would cover other organisms as well. Yeah, I think it's really fascinating. And I think it's a very exciting avenue of study. And, uh, you know, as well as the microbial tests and the soil health tests, you know, the PFLA. PLFA tests and the, you know, the Haney tests and all of that. I think those my, are- My, you know, on, on that, my, my question on the PFLA was, and on the CO2 burst is that, my understanding is that generally it just gives a quantification of biological activity. Right. But doesn't necessarily tell us, hey, if we've got a high biological activity, we don't know if it's a crop pest or a beneficial that is there. Right. And that's one of the parts that I think we're kind of missing is that, and some of these DNA tests can actually tell us that, is that, okay, now we've got a ratio of beneficial versus pathogenic fungi. Mm -hmm. uh, how many we have of, um, you know, the, the good and the bad and the ugly in between there. And that's, like I say, that's one of those things that we need to know. Yeah. And it just seems like getting those things to work together, you know, we'll be able to learn so much from that. Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, and, you know, the other thing about the DNA, of course, is I've, my understanding is we know like 1% of what's in this in the ground or something, you know, yeah, that much, what's yeah. been identified and what's been cultured and all of that. I mean, yeah. so there's a huge amount of unknowns yet, but it's still a very exciting field, I think. And that's why I focused in on the crop pests because, you know, my, my first thought was, hey, now if we can get a spatial representation of, you know, at least our crop pests, mm -hmm. not only in where they are, but in the load between one spot of the field and the next, you know, that is something that's going to be valuable. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, now let's look at all the beneficial stuff, the nutrient cycling organisms, the, the ratio of fungi versus bacteria. There's stuff to be learned there. Absolutely. Okay, good. And so just to get back to the nuts and bolts of strip till, uh, you know, there's sort of the Coulter shanks or knives debate on a strip till bar. What's, what's your thought on what's best and why? Yeah, you need to have either Coulter shanks or knives. I'll agree with you. <laughs> There you go. <laughs> um, again, it's um, depending on your management, where you're at. Um, here, I like um, I like knives in the fall. Okay. I do not like knives in the spring. Okay. Tell me so, why. Um, again, it comes down to soil conditions, fall versus spring. Okay. Um, trying to run that knife through a soil in the spring it's like I say, there's, there's just more soil moisture generally on the spring and it's just a harder process. So I would rather just have coulters in the spring. Okay. Um, but if someone's going down in the fall, the, the knife seems to be, to be better. Mm -hmm. 
But again, I won't tell anybody that you need to go out and get either a knife or a shank or whatnot. I mean, they've got to look at what works best in their own area and their topography and, and so forth. Yeah. Hey, how many rocks do you got? You know, if you got a lot of rocks, maybe that shank isn't going to be the, the best thing to do. Uh-huh. Uh, so what about cover crops? How does that fit into strip till? I, my opinion is cover crop can fit into strip till just as good as any other system. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if your focus is building a, a resilient soil or the soil health side of it, you know, adding a cover crop can can increase those soil health parameters much faster than just the reduced tillage or just the strip till by itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, but that goes with any with any system. So, yeah, do, do cover crops have a better fit with strip till versus a a no till or a conventional till system? I, I don't think it's any better, but it, it's it definitely has the the fit. Just like anything else, a cover crop's got a benefit and it. it can be used in, in any system. And so in your area, uh, is cereal rye sort of the dominant cover crop being used or are people using some mixes and things like that? It uh, depends on why they're using the cover crop. Okay. Um, again, if a grower is in a CSP or an equip or you know, one of the uh, NRCS or soil and water programs, generally they are in a multiple species mix uh, just because that's what their program is just dating and depending on you know again what they want to do um, you know for those that are trying to bring back some organic matter and some soil tilth to eroded knobs you know they're looking at something that's going to have a lot more roots mm-hmm. you know for those that have got cattle and are doing some grazing well then they'll add some other things into it for those that are coming after small grain and in my world small grain is very limited um then they'll do quite a few things just simply because they have the opportunity after small grain to 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 actually plant the the cover crop Mm -hmm. that's our biggest struggle here in southwest minnesota is that you know a lot of times winter comes a week before the end of harvest right you know and our opportunity to plant a lot of times after harvest just isn't here Mm-hmm. Yeah. So are people doing interseeding like a little bit earlier in the season to get things established or are they doing um, seeding or what? No, we're seeing more and more of that. And the reason is, again, as I said, to get things established, uh, primarily uh, being done by air was what it was all done mm-hmm. or through an airflow airplane or uh, ground rig uh, broadcast seeded and just left on on top. And mm-hmm. it's been a struggle to get them established. Mm-hmm. And as people have been looking that, hey, if we actually go in there earlier with an interseeder, actually planting that cover crop like a crop, putting it in the ground, um, having a much better result. You know, just to the west of me, about a mile, we've had that struggle for three years. Mm-hmm. When it's been as wet as it's been, we've been having a struggle with a broadcast application. This year on a dry year going in with an interseeder, uh, it, it's boy, the cattle are just licking their lips, waiting to get out there. I mean, it, it's was a good establishment. So we're seeing more and more uh, change away from broadcast applications to interseeding. Yes, and it's because of the difficulty in getting it established. Yeah, uh, and what about drone seeding? I, I think I saw on Facebook that you've seen some drone seeding of of uh, cover crops or something, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. One of the uh, uh, projects I get to work with with the university is has done that where we seeded 
by drone. It was mm-hmm. kind of interesting. Uh-huh. And it has, this year it established very well. But then, hey, we started getting rainfall, you know. Um, but yeah, that it, it did work. Yeah. What do you see as maybe the limitations or the benefits of, of drone seeding in the future? Well, the benefit would be targeting an area. Yeah. Uh, and it's really hard to get an airplane or any other airflow to be able to go in and, and target a specific area. Well, at least with a drone, we were able to target. We needed this treatment seeded, this treatment not. Yeah. Um, you know, outside of a project like this, you know, trying to seed, um, trying to think of when it was six, seven years ago when we had a heavy rain middle summer and a lot of drowned out areas uh-huh. and people were going out that physically driving down their crop to get out there to take care of the weeds that come in these ground areas. Well, that'd be a perfect place for a drone to go in and mm-hmm. see a cover crop. Sure. Um, like say targeting those specific areas. Uh, but one of the drawbacks is, boy, you really can't put a whole lot of seed on a drone. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, you know, if you want to cover a thousand acres, it's not going to work very well. So I mean, yeah. that's, that's the big drawback. Yeah, definitely. Right. So I wanted to just switch directions a little bit here. And um, I know that several of the new carbon market programs include strip till in their approved practices. Um, just kind of curious, do you think we'll see more adoption of the practice because of that? I don't know. Um, I could see it the other way, more carbon credit adoption because of doing strip till, but adopting strip till because of the carbon credit, it's not going to be something I'm going to focus on conver- a lot of conversations, mm-hmm. um, just simply because if that's the reason you're doing strip till, um, no, do strip till because you're planting a crop. You need to plant, you need to harvest. Um, if you're only doing it because of the carbon credit, uh, you're probably not focusing on the agronomy. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. And, you know, right now the carbon credit market is another entity in its infancy. There's not, I don't know a tremendous amount about it yet, um, but it's not something that is going to have enough of a return in my mind at this point to say, hey, this is going to help me get into strip till. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just not there yet. So different programs are sort of taking various different approaches to measuring soil carbon. You know, some are really insisting on doing that actual physical soil testing, whereas some are going to be relying on sensors and things like that. I'm kind of curious what your thoughts are on that. I think it's one of those things where we just got to do both and see which one works. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. You know, just another another thing that we just don't have enough experience on to know that this works or this doesn't work. Yeah. Um, and they've got to be done in tandem to be able to, to be able to uh, calibrate, you know, each system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, hey, if we keep doing these two and we keep getting different numbers, one of them's wrong. Uh, right. <laughs> At least we have to have a conversion factor in there that says, hey, if we're consistently wrong, well, we're still doing something right, but we just got to be able to, uh, you know, it, it's the, you know, the Celsius Fahrenheit paradox where we just got to have a way to be able to use one to calculate the other. But I don't, uh, it is, like I say, it's another, another something that we don't know enough about. We got to keep doing it to, to learn. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, so what are some mistakes that you see farmers make when they adopt strip till? I think the biggest mistake is not looking at their operation as a whole. Mm. Um, it is a very much an 
intercollect interconnected holistic operation from planting to fertilizing to weed management to other pest management to harvest to residue it, it all is connected mm-hmm. and i think too many times i've seen where okay as an example here in in our part of the state historically everybody planted into a rather black soil their planters did not have a lot of residue management on it so then when they all of a sudden started adopting these other systems like even just going to a reduced tillage or strip till they didn't look at how that was going to affect their planting operation mm-hmm. and struggled planting well strip till don't work because i can't plant into it well no, you got to look at that operation holistically. How is changing this one going to change everything else? Or how do I need to adopt everything else to be able to make this work? You know, we have changes in weed shifts, um, cover crops, you know, when integrating cover crops, uh, we don't necessarily need to use traded corn seed out here all the time. So we don't have the rootworm and corn borer pests as predominant as other areas. Well, if you're trying to terminate a grass cover crop in corn, you've got limited herbicide operate uh, options. So like I say, that's the biggest mistake is that they they, they change one thing and don't look at the rest of the operation and see how that's going to affect everything else. Do you have any advice for farmers who are interested in adopting or advancing strip till? My advice is if someone is wanting to make a change in a strip till, and there's a couple of questions that they just need to answer for themselves is one is why are you making this change? Um, if you're doing it strict, strictly to take advantage of, you know, some program, if you're doing it because labor shortages and you don't have everybody to do all the tillage and everything, you know, why are you doing it? I mean, if you don't have that, and then that's anything in life is, you know, why are you wanting to make this change? Um, and then the other thing is, Unlike a lot of other things in agriculture, um, strip tilt is very, very dependent on individual management. What your neighbor does may not work for you. Mm-hmm. So you got to learn your, how it's going to, uh, within your own management, how this system is going to work. Um, but still, the best people to talk to are other farmers that have been doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's you know, lots of opportunities for farmers to be able to get together. Even here in Minnesota, you know, there is uh, the Soil Management Summit, which, you know, lots of uh, strip-till, no-till farmers will get together and be able to, you know, get into learning sessions, but more importantly, talk to each other about what's been working and not been working. That is the best resource. It's just other farmers that have been doing something, um, trying to learn what they've done, what the, what hasn't worked, what has worked, and then adopting that to their own, to their own management. Yeah, okay. Good. Uh, Is there anything else that you'd want to talk about? Obviously, you're all about the agronomy. So is there anything else that you want to mention or focus on or anything like that before we wrap this up? Well, I think you just made a good point. I I think the one thing that we got to keep focused on is, you know, in the end, um, everybody's farming operation is a business. Mm -hmm. Um, It has to cash flow. Um, That isn't always very easy. And it is the plant it is the crop you know if we're doing something in the field i think every farmer has got to be taking the position of if i am my corn plant or if i am my soybean plant is what i am doing to the benefit of that plant mm-hmm. you know if it is to the benefit of me or to something you know some other entity other than just that plant well maybe it's not the best agronomic practice mm-hmm. and again the analogy is you know broadcast versus banded fertilizer be your plant. You know, when you're farming, you have to be your plant. You know, if, 
you can think like your plant. Um, try to visualize what your plant is seeing out in that field and do what is right for that plant. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah, I guess what I usually will bring up, you know, when I'm talking to farmers is that, you know, I'll ask them, you know, what makes your yield? And a lot of a lot of times I get the response back. Well, it's, you know, it's the seed. It's my genetics I'm putting in the ground. It is, well, if I get rain or not, it's, you know, it's, you know, what my fertility program is. And, and I would, I would offer that that's not necessarily right. You know, what makes their yield is how their plants genetic, how their plants genetic interact within their soil, mm -hmm. within the environment, I should say. And it's not the genetics, it is that interaction between the plant and the environment. And that is what they gotta be playing and paying attention to mm -hmm. because that's what's gonna make their yield. Thanks to Doreen Gatchel of Minnesota Agricultural Services for this conversation about making strip-till management decisions based on the good of the plant. To listen to more podcasts about strip-till topics and strategies, please visit striptillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Once again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Yetter Farmer Equipment, for helping to make this strip-till podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. For our entire staff here at Striptail Farmer, I'm Julia Gerlock. Thanks for tuning in.